Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. The words dialectical behavioral therapy don't sound very punk rock, but don't be fooled by those big words. Known by the acronym DBT, this style of therapy is in line with the DIY ethos of punk. Andrew White runs the Portland DBT Institute and is the bass player in post-hardcore band Garrison. When Andrew first found himself in the mental health sector, he didn't believe traditional therapy was ideal for most people. Then he found DBT. He devoted his career to it because of its non-hierarchical approach and focus on self-regulating skills. In a world rife with what Andrew calls bonkers therapy, DBT's action-oriented, self-directed teachings are about as punk as it gets. I'm Andy White. I grew up playing in bands on the East Coast. I ran sound for a long time at the Worcester Artist Guild, also known as the Space in Worcester. Um, so did sound for lots of bands. Played in various bands, and then I had met a couple of guys at the Space that needed a bass player. So I joined on to play with those guys, and that evolved into the band Garrison, which um, we did a lot of touring in the late 90s, early aughts. Signed a Revelation, did a lot touring around that, putting out of some records. I always did solo stuff along the same lines in some respect, a little more um, sort of mathy instrumental. And then eventually the drummer and I in Garrison left to go to grad school. And then I eventually made my way out to Portland, Oregon, where I still um, play in bands, record bands, do DIY, music, gear creation, stuff like that. It was a little hard for me to find my feeling of place as far as music. I really enjoyed being part of the space and running sound, working on PA systems, um, trying to fix things. And then I think something that I didn't do a really good job at when I was younger is trying to keep a foot in both worlds of both 
working in medicine and also music without compromising both of those. And I think I really struggled with that. One part I've been trying to do a better job at is crossing over the professional work I do as far as the mental health care with more of the music stuff. So not necessarily like doing the two at the same time, but trying to be more available for communities I've been involved in and have more connection there. I, I think there have been times where it's felt like very, very separate as far as like doing music and then doing like my day job felt very separate. So I've been trying to really focus on having more of an overlap. So you run a dialectical behavioral therapy clinic in Portland, and I'm wondering what it is that spoke to you in that therapy. I'm a clinical psychologist. When I was in Garrison, I was also applying for PhD programs at the same time. I had a job where I was being groomed to move into a position at the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. And I was doing a lot of work on understanding more about people who frequently came to the emergency room. I did not want to be a therapist. I went to a clinical PhD program. It was better for like working in the field, writing grants, doing policy work. So, you know, I had to do these clinical orientations. And at the time, I completely did not believe that therapy worked. Privileged people talking about their problems in a way that doesn't actually fix them. It's just totally navel-gazing. You can see a patient for 10 years and they don't get better. And you get to tell yourself, well, it's not my fault. It's the patient's fault. So I did this rotation in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And I had this instructor and they were amazing. And I remember hearing about the theory of it. This is how my brain sees the world. Like this is actually way different than what I've been taught before. And it was really focused on bringing together really strict behaviorism and mindfulness practice, but doing it in a way that was aggressively non-hierarchical and open source and was meant so that the client doesn't get brainwashed by the therapist. Like I really liked it. And then I found out when I was doing it, I was like, this therapy is designed for the people I'm seeing at the emergency room. Like that's actually who the author wrote it for. So Marsha Linehan at the University of Washington who wrote the treatment was trying to treat people who were really high risk I think the part that clicked with me as far as my music stuff is that I definitely knew people through playing music who were pretty high risk, like who had a lot of suicide attempts, who looking back probably qualified for borderline personality disorder and thinking folks I know have not got treatment that works and this treatment appears to work. And then as I went on in it, I learned more about it, about like the history of it, but also the fact that it's one of the most widely studied therapies in the world. I think it has something like close to 40 randomized trials, which is like the gold standard for seeing if something works. And this not only is a treatment that's well thought out, the developers put their money wherever their mouth is. And they were like, I'm going to demonstrate it works. I'm not just going to say, I think it works. Or So you mentioned borderline personality and mm -hmm. how it was designed for clients who, who deal with that condition. I know it also is quite valuable for bipolar as well. How would you describe the DBT just in a general sense to someone that doesn't know there's the four components? You could maybe run through those really quick, but overall, what kind of a therapy is it? I think of DBT as a basket of all of these practices that are put together. And the basket has two purposes. The basket is meant so a patient 
can take the skills and make them their own and not be reliant on a clinician. There's a skills workbook I actually have next to me on my desk here where people can figure out like, what do I need to do right now to stop my suffering from happening so things are better for me? The basket also helps therapists to stay on point and to follow um, a set of principles. So in general, what the therapy does is it like overlaps things. It says, look, so on one hand, we have really good data and we know how humans control or regulate their emotions. And there's a way to do it. So we're going to teach you what to do about your emotions, kind of like saying it's the missing owner's manual for your emotions. Now, at the same time, we also know that many of us who've done therapy will say that it's hard to translate the things you learn in therapy outside the room. And it's even harder when your brain is not focused in the way you want it to be. So this therapy radically accepts this idea that humans are really fallible and you need to build some structure for when that happens, for when you can't think. So I think what it does nicely is it says, look, we know how to manage emotions, so we'll teach you it. We also know what to do when you can't think. And we want to teach you a different thing then, because if you can't think, there's a whole like set of different things to do. And it would be really frustrating to try to do really thought-based work. And then we also know that humans a lot of our emotions tend to be prompted by our interactions with other humans. So there's a section about like, what do you do about other humans? And then tying it together is this idea that we blend together behaviorism with mindfulness practice. So in other words, like having a way to practice, like being present in the moment and tolerating that, but doing it in a very like planful, meaningful way. So the therapy itself revolves around learning these sets of skills and their skills for emotions, their skills for tolerating really stressful occurrences, their skills for other people, and there's core mindfulness skills. And it's taught in a very like pragmatic, practical way. And typical DBT programs, or I'd say adherent DBT programs, have kind of a component where you go learn skills as part of a group. And it's a group format. People um, encourage each other to learn skills. You kind of bounce things off of each other. And then there's individual therapy where the therapist really kind of operates as a consultant. As um, So for my patients, like I'm a consultant. I'm like, so you've told me what your life worth living is. My job is to help you figure out how to apply the skills to it on your own so that when you leave this program, which typically is about a one-year program, you really feel like you've got a system around you and like a way to move forward. Yeah, it's really DIY. Yeah, yeah. And DIT with your <laughs> with the other yeah. folks in the group and your your counselor. I was in DBT for about a year and a half, and I was the guy that volunteered to throw my face into the water in the sink. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's me. It's like diving off the stage. Part of the theory I think is so clever is that like the ice dive is both this way that you have to throw yourself into it. It's also it takes away a lot of the mystery of therapy, I think in a good way, and says like, look there are ways you can trick your physiology into settling in. And you only do that in an emergency, but here's how to do it. And it's different than other types of therapy that might say, well, there's a medication for that, or other types of therapy who would say, you don't have control over your body and emotions. I feel like this is a very like practical way of doing it. I think that's what appealed to me when I learned about it. Of like, this is very practical. It's very pragmatic. What spoke to me a lot too is the idea that when you're working 
in the clinical realm in DBT, the very first thing you target is anything that gets in the way of someone staying alive, which I think makes sense to me. It's just kind of practical. But then the second thing is anything that gets in the way of therapy working, and that includes the therapist. And it was one of the only therapies where I heard it openly discussed that like therapists can get in the way of therapy working just as much as clients or you know insurance companies or whatever else. If I went and I needed to hire someone to fix my tube amp, there's a person in town who's awesome. I don't think he's necessarily better, smarter, better person than I am. They've just trained how to work on tube amps. They could teach me that. Like I could ask them and say like, hey, can you teach me how to bias an amp and like what to do about it? And that's kind of how I see this treatment of like when my patients come in, I'm like, I'm not better, smarter than you. I've just trained in this kind of like my tube amp person. And I can train you on how to do it. And also the same things you go through are going to apply to me, which I do feel is pretty different than other therapies where there's often this like hierarchy of the therapist knows better or any problem that comes up is only related to the patient. And I really like that it baked into the cake that it was a non-hierarchical therapy. We mentioned plunging into the ice as a, what they call it, like tips. Yeah, the tip skill. Yeah, the tip skill. And there's things like radical acceptance, and yeah. there's a lot of distress tolerance, and there's all kinds of things in the DBT workbook. What are some of the ones that really stand out for you that have been successful with your work? I think it's changed over the years. I think I rely personally on the emotion regulation skills a lot. I think on having the learning history that they work. So if I'm really crabby and irritable, I know if I do the skill of opposite action within an hour, I'm not going to be crabby and irritable. And I've rehearse it enough. I like having that knowledge. I think the ones that have shifted things around for me a lot, I'm board certified in DBT and also in CBT. When I did my board certification DBT, you have to go do a mindfulness retreat, which I really didn't want to do. I really was like, this is a waste of time. I'm going to sit still for four days. There's so many things I could be doing in four days rather than sitting still. <laughs> this is so dumb. And so I did it. And Marsha Linehan is the person who ran it for the person with the therapy. And, you know, I went in, Marsha was like, do you have a mindfulness practice? And, you know, I was kind of like, well, I don't know. I play music and I think that's kind of a mindfulness. She really was like, that's not, well, not necessarily. And had me just count. So I spent four days counting to 10 for like eight to 10 hours a day. And I'm now very thankful of that because now I feel like whenever there's a time where I start to get stuck in my thoughts or I'm aggravated, if I need to, I can like turn it on and just go to like staying in the moment and counting and bring myself back. And it's kind of worked really well to get my brain to float back to being present. And that's been really helpful for me to be able to say, I don't actually have to do anything right now. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to act. I can just like pause for a second and have a really intentional way of doing that. I think that's been helpful. How many tens are you doing depending on the situation, I guess? Her practice for us was to breathe in as one, breathe out as two, up to 10, and then then back. I will say that a lot of times I'm just counting up to like seven or eight. I'm just like observing that I want to do something, like I want to respond by snapping at someone, or I'm upset, or I've noticed over the years that when I'm less wise and, and I have more vulnerability and more like emotion intensity, I also, which I think is somewhat common, I get like mildly paranoid 
and not paranoid of like there's the FBI is watching me, but more of like my friends are lying to me. So over the years, I don't think I understood that when I would notice those thoughts before, I would just say them. And I think there was a problem. And so now I'm able to be like, oh, okay, there's that thing where I'm like thinking someone's lying to me and being able to just be like, just take a second before you say something, count to seven, count to 10. And then usually if I do that, my brain settles a bit. And then my brain's like, they're probably not lying to you. They're maybe just whatever the case is. I think that's been helpful. Check the facts. Yeah, it helps me check the facts. (laughs) There's those internet memes that say, like, show me you're doing something without saying you're doing something. And mindfulness is basically saying, show me you're checking the facts and regulating your emotions without saying you're doing it. So I like that. I think if I had known what radical acceptance was when I was younger, I would have suffered a lot less. I I definitely had a lot of years of angst about, like, why certain things happen to me and a lot of suffering, a lot of like, it shouldn't have happened. It's not fair. Why me? And I think the idea of acceptance has been really helpful in small ways, but both to to be like, oh, it makes sense that someone doesn't call me back. And also bigger ways of like figuring out how these things over the years have made sense. Like one of the points I think that turn me towards like some of the track I do is I had cancer in high school. And that I think I really wish, I really wish at some point I'd learned DBT then. And someone had said, look, part of why you're suffering is not accepting that you had it. Instead, you spend all this time saying like, it shouldn't have happened. It's so unfair. Like why me? It just sucks. And then I was really thankful for that. My family was injured in the Boston Marathon bombing. And my brother really struggled with that. And he and I talked a lot about the idea of acceptance of like, it makes sense that these things occurred, not that you have to like them at all, but it makes sense. And he he really struggled with saying, it shouldn't have happened if we just had crossed the street 10 seconds later, none of this would have happened. And it's my fault. I should have hit the crosswalk button. So I really felt thankful, like I had these tools to be like, look, there's a different way to see this that will result in a lot less suffering. Yeah, I remember when I went into my psychiatrist and she noticed in me some changes and some shifts as they do, because of course, when you're in it, you don't notice it for yourself. Yeah. And she said that she sent some acceptance in me and I went home and realized that I did accept the fact that I was going to be dealing with bipolar for the rest of my life. There is no cure. There's no fixing it. Yeah. And that was a huge shift for me to have that acceptance. I wouldn't say it was radical acceptance, but it was <laughs> definitely acceptance. Yeah. So you mentioned before about playing music, being on stage, writing songs, all those things. And I just saw you playing Gainesville at Fest and Garrison was one of my highlights of the whole festival. Do you have any like DBT-esque sort of thoughts when you're up there? Is there anything that kind of rings true with the work that you do? When I was doing that rotation in DBT, part of what clicked for me is that we were recording with my then roommate and our friend Kurt. We were learning mindfulness skills uh, when I was in, in grad school. And I remember being like, hey, this is totally what it is, that I have to be able to play a part, observe that the record light is on, notice my thoughts, which are like, you can't screw up. <laughs> You all can barely afford to do this right now. Don't screw up, but also not get lost in those thoughts. And <laughs> speaking of acceptance, like I, part of when I was in Garrison, which 
I'm sure at times I, I was hard to deal with and um, I don't mind being sort of an intense person and I've, I've tempered that over the years. But I think part of it was in Garrison. I had a hard time accepting that I was playing bass. I remember being like, I'm not, a, I'm a guitar player. Like I'm not a bass player. And I think what's been different is really accepting and being like, playing bass is fun. You get to play through these huge cabinets. They sound huge. You only have four strings. You get to like make weird basses to play with. This is great. And I think the reason Garrison shows have felt much different for me of being like, this is a celebration. These are guys I've known since I was like 21 who've known me through all these different parts of my life, all the hard stuff and the great stuff. And it just feels much more fun. And I think part of what I'm better at is being able to observe a thought and let it go. Um, we had, you know, rehearsed for these shows a ton. And Guy, the drummer, and I both were like, look, we need to really, like, sing to each other to make sure no matter what's going on, we are, like, tied in. And there was, there was a note that we did at Fest where we had planned it. And I was like, okay, Guy, here's the deal. We're going to go off a cue because the guitars like tend to float a bit on that part. So we're going to cue it. And I'm looking at him and looking at him. He does the cue and I trust guy. And But in my mind, I'm like, that's the wrong time. And he hits the cymbal. And so I match him. And I think both of us were like, this is wrong. This is totally <laughs> wrong. And I think when I was younger, that would have really kind of ruined the show for me. I would have been like, that's so easy. Like, how did we not do that? really being able to be like, no, it's okay. Like I can notice that and I can keep playing and that's completely fine to like notice a mistake and keep playing is different than what I could do when I was younger. And also I just think really feeling this sense of like acceptance and ownership of like, I play in bands here in Portland, I play guitar and sing and I really love doing music and it's, I can't imagine not doing music and being able to be like, I fully and totally accept what I do in Garrison, and it's awesome. That was not a thought I had before, where I think before I was like, this is cool, but you know, I should be doing something else. You know, I also just think I was in my 20s and it was a lot harder for me. And and I, I think now like I feel much better. I feel much more accepting of it. Would you say that DBT is the punk rock of therapy? See, I think this is one of the parts where I can get in trouble. I've like thought about that. So I co-own this clinic and I, I run it. And so I'm aware that like, I don't want to say anything that will like damage the clinic. I've also thought at some point in my life, I want to write a book about how therapists have really failed the world as far as like doing effective work and like sending messages that are really problematic. I personally feel like DBT holds the ethos of do-it-yourself work all the way from that the book is transparent up to the idea that therapists can fail and also up this idea that there is an objective way to measure whether or not you're getting dbt and i like that because i feel like it's very consistent with principles of doing music where um there is some like objective measure to say like the thing you're doing 
does it qualify as being like a meaningful, interesting piece of work? And I think that DBT has that. This is the part for me in regards to punk rock and music, which feels like things don't cross over, where the friends I have in the music field who are connectors, who know lots of people, play in lots of bands, like do lots of recording and like connect people. Whenever they and I have talked, I've tried to really say, I can help people get into treatment. When you come across someone who really needs help, call me. And if I'm not licensed in that state, I can either get licensed or I can find someone for them and I can help you. But there's been this disconnect where then the people I meet in the fields of like metal or punk or whatever, they see these therapists who are doing like wackadoodle therapy and they don't hold the same standards. I'm always surprised where I'm like, I don't understand it. You are someone who is well-known in the field of music or metal or punk or whatever. And you went to see his therapist, but you didn't ask them questions like, how do you know this therapy works? Which I feel like should be the first question. How do you know this works? Why are you telling me to do it? How do you know it works? Do you have data showing this works? I feel like should be the first set of questions, but I run across all these folks and some who have had very sad stories. Like I can think of someone who unfortunately died and I remember talking with their family later and hearing about the treatments they did and thinking, this is just so bonkers. Like why there are treatments we know work. Why didn't someone at some point say to them, there's this better therapy? And I feel like that's the part that, that, that we as a community have a hard time with about being able to like tell people, look, not all therapies are equal. And I know people say they are, but they're not. That was my conversation with Andrew White of the Portland DBT Institute, pdbti.org, and Garrison, garrison garrison.bandcamp.com. For more episodes of Screen Therapy, go to screentherapyhq.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big news, the Screen Therapy book is available now. Screen Therapy, a punk journey through mental health, tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health. Like this podcast, it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out Screen Therapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Screen Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klahaman Nation. Contact me at ScreenTherapyHQ.com or email me at ScreenTherapyPodcast at gmail.com. 
I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time, take care and be well. You